So we're continuing this theme of spark when faith comes alive. And what I'd like us to uh, sit with this weekend is that pain that enters our lives, it, it has a particular potential, I think unlike any other, to spark something great within us. It really does. But we have to be able to listen to what it's trying to wake up. Um, and we live in a society where one thing is for certain, pain is the unavoidable reality of human existence. It's one of those things we can, nobody can resource away, nobody can insulate away, nobody has the capacity to remove it completely. Because if we do, we actually remove every other aspect of life that it's worth living for. See, to not feel uh, the pain of a love uh, being at risk is to choose not to love. It comes so closely connected to the best aspects of the human experience. And yet, I, I think that we live in a period in time in history where many times, if pain enters the picture, we have so much access to different ways of avoiding it, of numbing it, silencing it, successfully ignoring it, or even entertaining it away. We have the ability now more than at any other point in previous generations to live in existence where we have the ability to turn down the pain levels. We have access to that. And it's a remarkable thing. Pain is an interesting thing. It's one of those things that um, I have to say, I have not nearly as much experience with it as others in the world. And I, my life in many ways has been kept from extreme tragedy or harm. I, I have had, by comparison, an insulated upbringing where I was loved and cared for, I was provided for. And yet I have to say, given that's the case, that um, even though I had that experience, I have to say that the worst moments of my life were the ones that taught me the most significant lessons of my life. And this is something that I've shared before but my faith journey is so intimately connected with what pain feels like. I, I remember being a teenager, being told there was no way I was going to graduate high school. I, I remember being told that uh, there was no way, in, in essence, I could continue to lie to myself or to those around me. And I remember feeling kind of the wave of that come over me and feeling the shame. I remember feeling the failure, the grief. And that point, looking back as a 16-year-old high school student, be, being sat in that counselor's office, that was by far the lowest point I had had up until that moment. Grief wasn't as strong as it was then. And even though that's the case, I can also tell you that looking back, that became the beginning of a spark, something igniting within me, the beginning of my faith journey, as it were that truly altered the remaining days I have lived in a, in a remarkable way. And as I've gone through ministry and gone to hear people's story and live with other people, what I've begun to recognize is there's somewhat of a pattern. See, the worst moments in our lives, they have the capacity. They have the capacity. It doesn't mean it happens, but they have the ability to radically transform us. They do. They do. And, uh, you know, I recently read that if you were to search on Google, the best thing that ever happened to me, 
you would be surprised at what comes up. Now think about it. If you were to search, now don't do it, okay? That would be cheating. But if, think about it. If you were to search on Google, the best thing that ever happened to me, what do you think would be number one on that list? Okay, you got it? I was talking to my wife. I was thinking, you know what? What do you think, honey? What do you think would come up number one? And so we started talking about it. What would be the best thing that ever happened? What would people say? Now, I can assure you, I think most of us here, I'm not knowing what you have decided would be number one. I could assure you, unless you've done it, unless you've looked it up, we would all be wrong. Because what number one would come up, what Google would bring up to the best thing that ever happened to me is the Gladys Knight song titled, The Best Thing That Ever Happened to Me. <laughs> With the YouTube video and the lyrics and her Wikipedia and everything she's done. I didn't even know Gladys Knight, but the best thing that ever happened to me is there, number one. And as you scroll through it, we might expect to find, you know, things that would be more closely connected to the greatest events of life. We would say maybe the day I landed my dream job. Others would say perhaps we would say, you know, the day I met my spouse. Maybe when a child came into our family, we, we, the, the birth of a child. Those were the examples closely connected to what my wife and I were talking about. But those, those moments would actually be somewhat of a distant third. Because after you scroll through the pages of Gladys Knight, what ended up coming to the surface are people's blogs and articles and books written and different perspectives given around the best moment that ever happened to me. The best thing that ever happened to me was actually uh, surviving a fatal car accident. Having an extended period of unemployment. Hearing the news that I have cancer. People readily share around, in hindsight, the best thing that ever happened to them were categorically the worst moments of their lives where they did not feel anything other than pain. And that might be surprising, but if we think about it, it actually makes sense. Because if we have the painful experience of discovering firsthand how fragile life actually is, you know what happens? It can actually move us toward living the rest of our life well. If we hear the news, the awful news that the number of days we have left are actually far shorter than we expected, you know what happens? It can't. If we allow it to, it can move us to making sure there is not one day we live that is taken for granted. At least we do the best we can with it. Yeah, pain has the ability to move us. In a way, truly, nothing else can. And it is there that if we allow it, it can spark something. It can awaken something far greater than the pain we might experience. In fact, C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem with Pain, he said, listen, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, he said. He said pain is like, um, if we could imagine it, it would be the equivalent of the amp and the wattage necessary to revive somebody who is being resuscitated back to life. In order for a beat to occur, something needs to be shocking. Something needs to, to pull it out of death and into life, and he's still awaken it. He says, that, that it seems somewhat of what God does through the very customized 
points of pain in our lives. If we allow him to. And so as we think about what we may be experiencing, which by the way, if some of us aren't in that season of life, that is fantastic. But if we are, if we are, there's no doubt we want it gone. We want it fixed. But it might be also good to ask ourselves, what is my pain trying to awaken? What is it trying to bring to life? Because we might have, um, we ha- might have access to something that God is doing as rather special in this season of our lives, unlike any other. Perhaps that's why this account of this man named Nehemiah, really his memoir, is so fascinating to me. He is a man of noble character. He had compassion in his heart. He's a man worth admiring, but I believe he's a man moving beyond admiration. He's a man putting in a place of saying, I want to emulate him. Because something of what he shares describes Um, what it looks like to walk through real pain in a way that allows God to spark something truly beautiful and magnificent. If you open up your handout, we'll go ahead and read through the opening lines of his memoir. And in order for us to truly understand what we're going to interact with here, we have to know that Nehemiah was written, this memoir was written in a period in Israel's history in which they were coming back out of captivity. They had been exiled, really uprooted from their land and shipped throughout the known world by the Medes and the Persians who had conquered them. And on the other side of it, a group of Jewish people were allowed to go back to their city that they loved, Jerusalem, to rebuild it, to rebuild its temple, to rebuild the city itself. And, it, and Nehemiah finds himself, as we'll see, finds himself in a, um, it, the best way we could put it is, he's a trusted Israelite in the royal court of King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. He's the cupbearer. In other words, what this means is Nehemiah is the, he he tastes the chef's menu for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's his job. He does it. You know, we joke around when you see good food. It's like, well, someone should test this, right? And we might say that, right? Because we know it's delicious and we want to get some before anyone else does. That was his job. So that the king would not be put at risk. And so this is the position he holds. And we're told that in verse 1, these are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. He opens up and he says, In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. It's, it's the best way we can put it is that what Nehemiah is saying is, I want to make sure you understand exactly what moment in time this conversation occurred. Because it was a conversation unlike any other. In fact, the best way I can put it, this memoir is sparked out of what happened then, in that date. It was, uh, it was a date that I was ignited. But he's also telling us something else. He's also telling us that he was insulated from the pain and discomfort of his people. He's telling us that he was in the royal courts of the king. He is literally living behind a fortress of the most powerful kingdom in the world. He's telling us that uh, we could surmise that he had a situation that gave him the advantage, look, of the best society had to offer him. He would have access to the best meals, certainly, the best lodging, the best apparel, the best, uh, really, anything he desired was at his disposal. 
And yet this man, Nehemiah, had a genuine interest in the whereabouts and well-being of his people. He didn't allow the place of opulence and luxury to deafen his ear to a maybe going on outside the fortress. And we're told in verse 2 that Hanani, one of my brothers, he's writing in the first person, he came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going on in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. And the wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The report he receives, it, 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 the best way we can put it is, he, it's filled with terrible news. We may not see it because it may not jump out at us, but we have to understand that in order to appreciate this, the law of the ancient world was the law of might. It was the, the law of strength and power. Uh, the walls, in other words, made the nation. The strength of the wall determined the strength of its people. Uh, once a town had walls, its citizens would be able to bring order and stability to the area. They, they could accumulate property. They could enact, enact laws. They could elect magistrates to make sure those laws go into effect. In essence, walls to the ancient world commenced the beginning of civic society. It allowed societies to grow and prosper. It, it had huge amount of significance and implications. The report Nehemiah then is given is one that gives them insight into the emotional, social, physical condition of his people. We could say it emotionally, what is he told? He's told there is great trouble. To be told that the walls have been torn down, the gates burned down. The word of great trouble, this word distress in the Hebrew, it, it speaks of evil has come upon his people. It would be almost as if they're saying to him, Nehemiah, if you were to connect the dots, you understand that they are a people living uh, somewhat of a paranoid existence. They feel haunted by the insecurity and anxiety that comes along with their position of vulnerability. There's no defense for them. There's nothing protecting them. They are constantly on edge. They're in great trouble, Nehemiah. They um, socially are a disgrace, is the word that's used. They're looked down upon. They're not respected. They're disregarded. They're seen with contempt. They're not in good standing with their neighbors. If anything, they're seen as a nuisance that needs to be removed. Their walls are exposing them to high levels of ridicule, or the broken down walls, rather. Physically, they're in great risk of invasion. A wall in ancient times spoke of protection and wealth, security. It was a, a town of any size was at the mercy of any roving, plundering horde looking to invade. There was no system to protect a town from a group stronger than the town, just coming through, roving, taking everything that's valuable, and leaving. Nothing was in place 
without the wall. This news would be, um, in other words, it would be far more significant. Their physical condition impacted every other aspect of their lives, which, by the way, is why Proverbs, if you were to read Proverbs, there are multiple metaphors around the idea of a wall around a person. And Solomon said, listen, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. It's to say that a person who has no ability to fortify some degree of structure, uh, some degree of, of boundaries from them with the rest of the world, that person, Solomon would say, is like, is like a city without walls, completely vulnerable and insecure, completely unable to protect or accumulate any. That person, it, it will be very difficult for them to prosper, for anything can plunder them. Says that that's the idea. That's the idea. It's 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 the warning. The idea is that imminent destruction is closer than anyone might realize when the protection of self-control is gone. Says in the same way that a person feels that way. That that is what the the entire city of Jerusalem felt like. And Nehemiah would understand the gravity of the news he received. And he would end up responding in kind. And we're told in verse 4 that he says, When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. I, uh, I took this in. And it's here. Not just the fact that he was a man in relative comfort and the highest levels of security and resource and protection. And yet having had that position, he had compassion enough to reach out and see how his people were doing. But his re re reaction, in my opinion, is he, Nehemiah starts to walk the path of anyone who does something great in this world. And great that is in the eyes of God. Because you know what Nehemiah doesn't do upon hearing this? His original inquiry for his people and the city he loved turned into something that, you know what it didn't do? It didn't, it didn't turn into him being numb to their circumstance. It didn't turn into him being desensitized and calloused to what was going on. It didn't turn into him silencing his ear and refusing to ask more for fear of what actually could be shared. It, it, you know what? He allowed the news to penetrate his exterior and enter into the inner parts of his soul. And what's more, you know what he did? He allowed grief and pain and sorrow to well up and find authentic expression. He didn't allow the news to simply penetrate and then stuff it down. No, he permitted it to inhabit his soul. And then he, he genuinely allowed it to express itself. This, in many ways, it became this outpouring of grief. You know what it did? It awakened his soul to a calling of something he needed to respond to. He allowed this pain to identify to him. In his case, it ended up becoming the moment that his pain, his grief, his sorrow turned into action. And we know it. We know it. He, he shows us. You know what he does? He shows us how to grieve. Something that in our culture, you know, 
He didn't allow it to, to lead him toward destruction. But he allowed himself to actually mourn. Genuinely, sincerely. It, it's, uh, he determined in his pain that this would be the incident he identified that God was allowing to enter his life to call him into action. And we know that it would not be too long after this incident that Nehemiah ends up becoming the catalyst or the, the agent by which God ends up raising up walls of protection, real walls of protection around the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants to the point where those fortifications allowed his people to grow and prosper and gain degrees of security. And hundreds of years later, Jesus would come upon that city and he who was mourning and weeping over the city 450 years prior to Christ would join with Christ when Christ would sit at the, at the top of this mount of Jerusalem and he would look down upon it and Luke would tell us that he would say, would you, would that you, even you, would have known this day the things that make for your peace. All the while weeping. That Jesus would, would weep over this city and the people who lived within it. That his heart would be torn asunder for them. He, he Nehemiah, ends up stepping into that place of allowing grief to move him, to awaken him to determine this is something I must do something about. Uh, Jerusalem, it has always and will always hold special fascination for every generation. The city itself, look, there are more ancient cities, there are bigger cities certainly. There, I, though I have not been to Jerusalem yet, I'm sure it can be said there are more beautiful cities. But what can never be said about Jerusalem is that it will be a, a point in history in which it does not hold special importance in the world. Even today, the city grips the international community with rapt attention. There's something unique about it. And God cares for it. And if that's the case, listen, this certainly may be um, the case for us today, Thousands of years removed from Nehemiah's day, but if that's the case for us, it cannot be overstated what an impact this would have had on an Israelite living in captivity from his land where faith and life meet, where real faith meet. They jump out of the pages and into roads and buildings and structures and paths where people walked and talked. This would be certainly part of the reason why Nehemiah responded so passionately what moved him to action. But if that's the case for Nehemiah, I think he also offers us something to reflect on in terms of our struggles and our pains. I want to suggest in these moments we have here that this model we are given in Nehemiah, it can give us something of a, some footprints, something, it tells us something of how God may want to work through our pain. And I just want to put it up there. Uh, firstly, you know what it shows us, Nehemiah reminds us of, is that some life pains, you know what they do? They have the power to snap us out of denial. And they have the ability to grab our attention and to wake us up to something. 
There are some pains in life that they, they are not necessarily meant to do this, but there are certain times in our lives where God might be whispering, or to use C.S. Lewis's term, through a megaphone, shouting to our deafened hearts and our ears, and he's trying to wake us up. And that is, the instrument is being utilized. And we might think to ourselves, you know, what, what, what is going on here? Where is God in this pain? And it might be actually easy in the very pain we might be experiencing to wake us up and to move us forward. This is so critical in order for anything to wake up. You know, the, the friction, the tension point of life coming into this world, of life being protected, of life being resuscitated, it's a rather agitating and violent and extraordinary event. High levels of friction doesn't just happen smoothly. Many things need to come together all at once. I was reading, I was reading a book by Amanda Ripley called The Unthinkable. Who survives when disaster strikes and why? I thought, wow, that's a captivating title. But her opening chapter ends up recounting the horrific events of 9-11, and in it she ends up describing the environment people found themselves in within the two towers that were struck. And we would imagine that the environment would be chaotic that the environment would be filled with people who understood what happened, planes coming into these buildings, seeing the smoke, smelling the, the, the gasoline and the, the fumes coming. They would, they would leave their stuff behind, and they would just run down whatever exit point they can, and they would escape desperately. We would imagine that would be the case. We would imagine that would be the case in any disaster. But Amanda describes something far different. She describes something that's rather haunting and reason to be concerned because what she describes by firsthand accounts and from people who spoke to people inside the buildings was actually something far different. When the, the buildings were impacted and when the smoke started rising and when the fumes started erupting, people actually looked to one another to how to respond. And they realized that nobody was actually making too much. And so they decided they would make, the, they would continue, some decided they would continue to just close up their computers and shut down slowly. They would make phone calls, let their clients know they were gone for the day. Others would make personal phone calls. The initial moments would fill with this kind of quiet, subdued reaction. And she said, they would look to each other. And this, is, this, this calm settled upon both towers, especially if you were just a little bit removed from the impact zone. And as time went on, she said this, this would occur because there would be not only the impact of people's reactions around them, but something psychologists call the normalcy bias. The normalcy bias is the pattern in which we interact with our world, in which we utilize patterns that we have come to identify in our past to define what is happening in the present and to predict to us what is going to happen in the future. Normalcy bias tends to tell us everything's going to be okay. And when our peers don't overreact because we don't want to risk social embarrassment, we tend to drop down, not, not, to, not to just stay normal, but we tend to de-emphasize the pain or the impact of what we're experiencing. And so actually, rather than overreacting or reacting normally, she says most people in that level of situation 
they underreact. Because they assume this is normal. And it would not be until somebody from the outside would run into office buildings and would declare how grave the situation, situation was and rather forcefully would wake people up and tell them, you must leave now. You must leave everything behind you. We have to get out of here. Not until an outside catalyst would invade that environment would people recognize just seriously how much in danger they were and then they would proceed to exit as quickly as possible. She said, this is why denial is so powerful. This is why every single, every single recovery program says that the first step toward moving forward is always admitting there's something wrong. If that was the case, if that's the case, just psychologically, do you understand? We live in a culture, in a society in which we underplay. And if we don't, you know what happens? We overplay. And it becomes destructive. This is where Nehemiah shows us there are some wounds we need to sit down. We need to acknowledge We need to grieve. There are some pains that the first step is to recognize um, there's something going on here. And it's okay to weep. And it's okay to to feel it. It's okay to, to step out of denial and toward reality. Because to do that, Can you see it? It is one of the most courageous things we could ever do. And to do it and invite God, you know what Nehemiah shows us? It's not without hope, but it is to grieve, inviting God into the grief and into the pain. I sat, I wept for days. I mourned and I prayed to the God of heaven. Some of us, we need to recognize pain is trying to wake something up. But it won't wake up if we don't acknowledge it. And if pain does this to us, you know what it also can do? It can infuse a deeper sense of compassion for others in pain. It has a remarkable capacity to not shrink our soul. But when God is very much a part of our journey and he is invited into the most painful parts of our journey, you know what happens? Our soul expands. Because when we allow this to occur, listen, when we refuse, this is why, by the way, numbing ourselves is not actually the best option. This is why in our culture where we can... What, what, what do they call it? We can, we can eliminate discomfort with all kinds of different distractions and ways of soothing ourselves, altering our mood. We can do it as something like, like, like a tub of ice cream, for example. We can do it with what they call retail therapy. We can, now we can watch a show all seven seasons <laughs> at once to the point where it programs in Netflix to task us. Are you still watching? <laughs> right? It has, we have been given the capacity to truly avoid 
what we may be walking through. And this is why when we do that, you know what we also end up doing? We end up removing the power pain has to enlarge our ability to identify with the rest of the human experience. Because we don't, need not step into somebody's exact situation to understand what we most long for when pain invades our lives. Yes, we want remedies. Yes, we want it to be fixed. Yes, we want it to be solved. Who doesn't? We start to discover that what we most long for is a companion. Somebody to walk with us. Somebody to join our journey, which is what makes Jesus so remarkable. It would be Jesus, the one who wept over Jerusalem, who would step down from that point of weeping and move into action and taking upon himself the penalty of all of human brokenness and feeling the entire gravity and weight of all the pain this world has to offer. Becoming the man that Hebrews describes as saying he is the high priest who is, um, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Becoming the man that is described as many ways, but one, one characteristic that is commonly described to Jesus is that of compassion. Which in its Latin root literally means it, it, it's compati. And it literally means to suffer with. When we sense our souls being discomforted, we have a unique access to the very heart of God for everyone in pain. And we then become people who can extend to one, to a neighbor, to a family member, to a friend, to a coworker, the ability to say, I may not completely understand what you're going through, but I'm right here with you. When we mourn, we know what those mourn, those who mourn need. I'm right here. And when we invite God into that place, it has the ability to soften us rather than turn us numb or bitter and resentful. It can enlarge our compassion, which is exactly what happened with Nehemiah. And if it happened with Nehemiah, you know what also it reminds us of? Pain can remind us, if we allow it, of our need for grace only Jesus can give. It has the ability to remind us there is no amount of resource, no amount of fitness, no amount of uh, success, no amount of relationships, nothing in this world can remove us from the place of needing grace. A lot of times, one of the most challenging things to grapple with is if God is loving, why did he allow pain? And I think many times it is in the suffering of Jesus that we discover it is actually the fastest way to access God. The psalmist said in Psalm 9, he said, listen, the Lord is a shelter 
If we could put it to that, the Lord is a shelter for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. Where is God in my pain? He's far closer than we might realize. Because it is there that he runs and he seeks to become what we may feel we are lacking. This is what Nehemiah becomes an instrument for. This is what the psalmist said. This, this is, God is the fortress. He is the wall that fortifies. He is the shelter. And he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in our pain. He never ridicules us. He never demeans us. He never mocks us. He strengthens us. As Isaiah said, listen, the weak, they have a unique access point to God. He gives power to the weak and he strengthens the powerless. He gives, he gives, he gives listen, power to the weak and strength to the powerless. He is able to absorb our grief and our pain and our agony and he's able to whisper back into our soul life and hope and strength. And he is able to absorb us and not be overcome by us. Absorb our darkness and allow his light to overpower it. He's the one who's able to do this. And, he, you know, we think, how is that even possible? And I, <clears throat> I have in my seven months of being a father discovered something well, I've discovered many things, especially being a father of a little girl. They have power, but I have discovered, I always, how do you do that, God? You know, it's interesting. The most intimate moments I've had with my daughter <clears throat> are moments when she is in pain. And I'm holding her. And she's, well, she's yelling and screaming shrieking and here's the deal it doesn't overwhelm me it doesn't overpower me it doesn't make me distraught but she is overcome with grief for whatever reason but i've discovered there's something in a role of a parent our job is to absorb it and then to speak life it's going to be you can be all right. You'll get through this. Even if you keep me up the rest of the night, <laughs> we'll get through this. In those moments of tender pain and agony, the moments I get to whisper tender love, hope, and strength. And if that is the case for father and mother, with weaknesses and contradictions, how much more is that the case for our Heavenly Father? When we run to Him with our pain, He longs to awaken something within us with the whisper, I'm right here. You're going to be okay. We'll get through this together. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something beautiful. Oh, may that be the case. May we hear his voice. Even in our closing moments with our closing song, as we receive our time of giving and the band comes up, I just want to pray. And thank you, God, 
I thank you that you are not one who ever allows a single tear to go wasted, a single wound to be thrown aside. I thank you that you are able in your own gracious, loving, tender way to utilize the worst of our moments and transform them into the best moments because you awaken something new. We pray for your blessing. We ask for this in Jesus' name.